Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Green, green, I see it. Uh, Not green. So yeah, I, what a great holiday to celebrate. This is a Christian holiday. Let me explain to you, for those of you that don't know, uh, St. Patrick was actually a, a literal person. He was actually not Irish. <laughs> he, he was from Britain. Uh, he was kidnapped by some Irish pirates in those days. The Irish, the Scottish, uh, they, they were all... Uh, raiding each other's coast, and they would take away slaves. Human trafficking is a way of labor, forced labor, and getting some things done. And and so at the age of 16, he was kidnapped. Uh, he was in Ireland for six years where he learned the language, and he was uh, performed slave labor, and then he escaped, came back home. He, in the process, had a conversion in his life. His dad was a deacon. This is, we're talking early 400s. Uh, he was converted, and as he studied theology and ministry, he felt the call of God to bring the gospel to Ireland, that God had prepared him. And it was a big thing, because he knew that in one point he was enchained again uh, because of preaching the gospel, but he went all over Ireland um, proclaiming, baptizing, and starting monasteries. Uh, We think of monasteries as a place where you just retreat from the world and pray, but it it was more than that. It was training centers where people were being trained with the gospel, just like this is a training center, right? A locker room, and then out there is a playing field. So he did this, and and I think the the chasing the snakes out of Ireland is, is a metaphor for what he really did for Ireland. He delivered Ireland. He brought the gospel to Ireland. But the best is yet to come. By the way, this isn't even the message. <laughs> I'm not charging you for this, this part. By the next century, not only were these monasteries Uh, blooming, but there was one planted right off the coast of Scotland on the island of Iona in in the Argyle district, and uh, that became the greatest monastery of all that began to pulsate uh, missionaries to Europe. Uh, Europe had not been evangelized yet. I know it sounds completely backwards to you because those of you that are German or Swiss or Austrian, you think, well, we've always had the gospel. No, uh, actually, <laughs> y- you got to thank the Irish. And I'm not even Irish, I'm, you know, but uh, yeah, you got to thank the Irish. So they just began to go in like uh, missionary monsters, proclaiming the gospel, challenging all the paganism. Uh, that was in there and and Christianized Europe. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> so as we return to First John, I have a question for you. Uh, how many, what's the percentage you think in America are Christians? It's a great question. Uh, the Barna, Gallup, all these different pollsters 
are telling us every year what percentage of Americans consider themselves to be Christian. And based on these polls, it always comes out somewhere between 75 and, and 85%. And I, I, I live in this country. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I never felt that. I've always felt like it, it feels like about 18% uh, to me. But keep in mind, it's people that call themselves nominally, that means in name only, Christian. Uh, and sometimes in our country, if you ask someone, are you a Christian, what they hear by that question is, are you a good person? I remember when I was first asked that question at 18, I said, uh, 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 I think so. And she says, uh uh-uh. uh. If you were, you would know it. So here's the question How would you know it? How would you know absolutely that you are a devout follower of Jesus? How would you know that you absolutely are going to heaven? How would you know absolutely your sins are forgiven? And I hear various things all the time. But John gives us actually three tests in 1 John to assure you and me that you absolutely are a Christian. You say, three tests? What are they? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So test number one is the doctrinal test. We studied this in chapter two. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Verse 23, whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. He's pressing back against the heretics that have emerged out of his church and have left his church that have said that Jesus is less than the Son of God. And what they believed by a heretic by the name of Serenthus who lived at this time We know this from literature outside of scripture that he taught that the spirit of God, the father, came on Jesus at his baptism. Before that, he was merely a man. Came on him at his baptism. The spirit of God left him before his crucifixion because a good God cannot actually die on a cross. He was just a mere man, again, dying on the cross. And John is pushing back against this, saying no, He was fully man, but he was very God of very God who came. And so the cost of heaven to save you was much higher than an angel or an apparition or a human being. I mean, I can go to any country and die for your freedom as an American, but I cannot save you of your sin. I'm sorry. I don't have that power. But there is someone who does, and it's... Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who came for your sin. Second test, are you still there? So the second test is the moral test. And Ryan touched on this wonderfully last week, talking about the four-letter word, obey. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you're 100% perfect, always obeying, but it's the moral test. And the moral test is that there's a changed life that begins to happen in your life. The Lord is guiding you. The law is now written on your heart, not just out there. And the Holy Spirit is the inside coach. He's guiding you. Have you ever felt what we call conviction? You know, and you just say, oh, that's, that's just me. Oh, that's my overactive conscience. And, and it's actually God working in you, and he's, he's teaching you to obey. The third, by the way, this great scripture for that would be no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, this is a difficult verse, and Ryan masterfully dealt with it, but let me just revisit this. Uh, this is in the linear tense, uh, present tense, and that's why it's translated continue to sin with the idea that, of course, he's already established from chapter one that we are sinners. You should say amen to that one, too. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Not many amens when you come to, uh, I'm a sinner. Um, I, I'm wrong. <laughs> Amen, I'm wrong. Okay. But if anyone says they are without sin, they're a liar. And the truth isn't in them. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's already established the truth that we're sinners. So he's obviously not saying if you then after Christ sin, you're not a Christian. He's not saying that you have sinned probably today. Not necessarily something you did that was so wrong, but what didn't you do that you should have done? I mean, nobody's perfect here, right? What he's talking about is when you find yourself caught repeatedly in sin, doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and you're justifying it, you're saying it's okay, I'm just gonna sin all the way to heaven, uh, the Spirit of God is working in your heart to make you feel uncomfortable. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, that's a gift from God. It means there's still a chance. Like, I feel, I feel embarrassed, I feel shamed, I feel guilty. That's a gift from God to get you and I to stop sinning. Stop it. I was listening to the radio about uh, this morning. There's a show I like to listen to on my way to church. It's called The Jesus Christ Show. Uh, I know, it's kind of crazy, but uh, I'm not going to explain, explain it. Um, and uh, the guy called in. He's a heroin addict. And he says, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in this cycle. What do I do? And the host is, is counseling him out of his heroin. There's, there's a lot that needs to go on with that because heroin actually begins to, to change your brain and, and lock you into that addiction. It's not just a psychological addiction, but it's a biological addiction. But he's justifying it, but he wants out. And you just substitute that for any of your sins. Maybe it's you're justifying your anger. Maybe it's you're justifying your hatred for one person. Maybe it's justifying uh, whatever our sin happens to be. Well, John's saying you can't stay there and call yourself someone that has the seed of God in you. Because the seed of God, the Holy Spirit, I'm saying S-E-E-D, not S-E-A-T, 
The, the seed of God is birthed in you by the Holy Spirit, and now he wants to grow and change you, and that's gonna begin to weed out the dark closets of your life, some that we don't even know. And that's good, good news, folks. We get to change. Well, you don't have to be you the rest of your life. That should be good news. Um, so that's the second way we know that this metamorphosis, this transformation is happening. Then the third test is the best of all and the most challenging of all. The word love. If you are born of God, if you know Christ, you are increasingly discovering yourself, participating in the God life, which is the life of sacrificial love. Father, we pray that you would be with us today as we study your word. Oh, Holy Spirit, how we need your help to illumine our minds, to shine your flashlight in our hearts, and actually great potter to shape the clay and mold us into your image. So do it, we pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. So love is the indisputable mark of a Christian. I can't see what you believe. I can't see that in your heart. And often I can't see the moral struggles that are in your heart, but I can see love. It's the fruit of being a Christian. So we read in verse 11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. It's not complicated. You don't have to go to grad school. You don't have to go to seminary to learn this. Love one another. It's the mark of a Christian. So we believe, we obey, and we love. And Jesus himself reduced the entire law, the Old Testament, into two commands, remember? Love the Lord your God with all you got, my paraphrase, and love your neighbor as yourself. He further went on to say, love your enemies. Wow, what a challenge. Now, here we have to be clear. We, nobody has an enemy here, right? <laughs> Christians are good at this, I'm telling you. We don't have enemies. We just have people we don't like to be with. <laughs> so he's calling us to love them. John later sums up his entire epistle with three words, God is love. So for you and I to love, and this is the word agapao, the verb form of agape, divine love, sacrificial love, not get love, not romantic love, not friendship love, um, not nostalgic love, I love marshmallows being roasted over uh, a fire, uh, s'mores. I, I'm talking about sacrificial love. That's God's love. That, my friends, is the divine life. It's the divine life. And we are flipped upside down in this fallen world. We have been told in this world system 
that the wonderful life is the get, 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 get life. My precious. You know, get more beauty, get more money, get more fame, get more popularity, get more money, get more beauty, get more fame, and you will be amazing. It is the amazing life. And so we get, 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 and we can't stop getting, getting, getting because we never get there. It's upside down. The wonderful life is the God life where your shoulders are so broad that you can actually give of yourself instead of get. So who does that? God. For God so loved the world that he got. No, he gave. And that's what he calls us to do. And this is not a new idea. I've given you like four lines of Old Testament scriptures to remind yourself the Old Testament taught this over and over again, that God is love. John learned it from Jesus, and he learned it from the Old Testament. Moses heard it when he was on Mount Sinai, and the, the Israelites had sinned, and they had, they had rebelled against God, and after this great exodus, they had created this golden calf. Moses comes down with the law. He finds them dancing, an orgy going on, and celebrating and worshiping this golden calf. And the question is, can God forgive? It's a great question. Can a God of justice, think of it, the God who is judge, the God who is not Democrat or Republican, he's not partial justice or his pet justices, but his perfect justice, can a perfect, just God forgive? It's a great question. Anyone who's been born into Christianity automatically assumes it's almost like a right. It's an entitlement. If you're American, God has to forgive you. But... In Moses' day, nobody knew. Can God forgive? I don't know. We didn't get that from Abraham. We didn't get that from Isaac and Jacob. We don't, we don't know. And he goes up on the mountain. And that's what that story in Exodus 34 is all about. When God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by in his glory, Moses hears the answer. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. So if you were to self-describe you, what would be the first adjective you would use about yourself? If you really knew me, I am, boom, or I am a, what is it? And if you don't know what that is, your spouse already knows. I am a perfectionist. I am a artist. I am, a, what, what is the characteristic that hallmarks you? The number one characteristic that hallmarks God is love. I'm gracious and compassionate. This is love shining through a prism and we have love broken down into different colors. I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with love, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving not just piddly sins, but wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is love. 
So when we have the seed of God born in us, he says to you, tag, you're it. You want to follow me? You're going to learn the God life, the love life. It's the mark of a Christian. Here's my slogan. Everybody loves until they discover that someone has accidentally used your toothbrush. (laughs) It happened to me when I was directing in Bible college. One of the most loving Bible students came up the hills into my office screaming, ranting and raving that his roommate had used his toothbrush. You know, I said, so get some rubbing alcohol. So what's, and he says, but this is who he is. He just doesn't, he doesn't pay attention to where things ought to be. And, you know, even though both our toothbrushes were blue, he should have known that this was, and it just goes on and on and on, you know. And I realized everybody loves until someone uses your toothbrush. (laughs) Everybody loves until what? Everybody has a line. Are you with me? Where is your line? Everybody loves until they're late. Someone told me, if you're more than 10 minutes late, you're rude and I don't want to be your friend. I said, whoa, there's a line. (laughs) How's that working for you in Southern California? Everybody's rude until, where's your line? Everybody's love, excuse me, until. (laughs) So what bothers you? Now he warns us, don't ever hate. Don't ever hate. But remember, you yourself will be hated. Do not lie, excuse me, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So the opposite of love he now turns to, and that is hate. Hate is much worse than indifference. Indifference hurts. Indifference is someone being cold to you, uh, it's what you experience in junior high when you're out of the, the in crowd and then the next day you're in the in crowd and the next day you're out of the in crowd and you, you get this cold shoulder. You're not cool enough for us. But hate is even worse than that where you take all of the energy that you would put into assertively loving someone and you assertively hate someone. Now here again, Christians are good. We hate nobody. We just have certain people we despise intensely. (laughs) So we use vernacular to get away. It's like the illusionists. That I don't, I don't, trust me, I could go through this entire room, 800 people and say, do you you hate? And I can tell you 100% will say no. Oh, that's amazing. I guess rip that verse out of the Bible. Doesn't apply to us. But it's because I just don't hate. Hate is a word that, uh, that I would say for, you know, Hitler. 
but I just despise people. Or there's there certain people that strongly, strongly irritate me, and I hope they're on the other side of heaven <laughs> when, when, I, when I get there. So he uses Cain as the example. Uh, Cain's hatred for his brother Abel, you can read about it in the first half of uh, Genesis chapter four. And I think it's, it's pertinent because familial hate, that is brother to brother in a family, or religious hate, as in this case where God's accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's, I think is the most dangerous form of hatred. Family hate is so close to the bullseye of a person's heart. Who is it in the center of your heart? It's, it's God, it's mother, it's father, it's brother. It's, and when hate is there, it is the hardest thing to deal with. And now, if we went around the room and we said, do you have, or have you experienced this in your family? where someone in your family has not spoken to you for five years or 15, or you yourself have not spoken. You know, it's there. Then you add to that religious hate, the kind of thing that happened in New Zealand just a few days ago. Religious hate. Here again, God is the bullseye of your heart, and now... You're, you're using the God language and the God uh, spiritual language to express hatred that I am backed by God himself in my hatred for you. It's what we've experienced in our generation with radicals from every form. Radical Hindus, as I said, uh, killing anyone who becomes anything but a Hindu. This is in the north uh, because they think that you now are threatening their life and you're threatening the gods who are going to bring provision. So now that you're a Christian, we've got to oust you or kill you in order for the gods to be happy with us in our village. Or the Islamists or the white supremacists that feel that they have somehow God behind, they have a God badge that allows them to hate. It's hideous. And that's what you have in Genesis chapter four where Cain now feels that he is, is justified when in fact he just didn't bring a heart sacrifice to God in the first place. Some people think that he should have brought an animal sacrifice like Abel did because without an animal sacrifice, there's no forgiveness of sins. But I would interpret the passage differently uh, just because there isn't any of that in the, in the passage. There is no talk of an animal atonement, the atonement of blood. What it is, the language itself in the Hebrew is a thank offering. One was a farmer. He, he, that was Cain. He raised fruits and vegetables. And the other raised animals. And so they brought their thank offering to God, but God looked at Cain's heart and said, you know, you're not into this. You're just going through the motions. This is not from you. Hebrews says it was not connected with faith. He, there was nothing of his heart. Folks, you cannot worship God without your heart. It seems like 
I, and I'm not condemning you. I've done it myself. I've stood right where you are, and I've said, glory to God. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I wonder if the Patriots are going to win today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not condemning myself, but I'm just saying that was not worship, right? But because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, now you have familial hate and you have religious hate, and he kills his brother. So Jesus, your Lord, says, you have heard it said, don't murder one of the Ten Commandments, but I say to you, don't hate. And don't even use the word fool in regards to another man. Why do we feel the need to judge other people? Folks, there is a, there is a judge, there is a God, and it is not you. You're free. You have extra time on your hands. If you don't have to judge anybody. <laughs> but he says, all men will hate you. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. You're in good company. Jesus is with you. Let me give you some shocking statistics. They're in your notes if you're curious. Conservative estimate I think it's higher, that over 20 centuries, 70 million Christians were martyred. That's one-fourth of the United States. But 45 million of the 70 million happened in the 20th century, after we were enlightened, after humanism, after we all got better. Another statistic, this estimate uh, above ignores the martyrs of Eastern Europe, Ethiopia, Sudan, Armenia. Armenia is five to six million alone in, in their great atrocity, World War I. Um, and other estimates are that 100 million Christian martyrs in the 20th century alone Approximately 160,000 were martyred in the year 2000 alone. Over 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights. And by the way, most of those countries have all signed the UN doc declaration that they will allow freedom of worship. At least 40 of them do not allow it. There's no freedom of worship. And I, I'm just bold enough to, to, to expose them, to call them to task. And we need to, but, but equally, uh, to pray for our brothers and sisters. They're your cousins. They're your, they're your family that are in harm's way. And I think we learn so much by standing near our brothers and sisters. There's a movie coming out that I just want you to be aware of. It's called Unplanned. And let me preface this by saying, uh, when it comes to the issue of abortion, can we all agree that it's been a painful issue for our country, no matter 
where, what your background is in it, and in a size this crowd, crowd this size, sorry, uh, there's several of us that have had abortions, and there's nothing but compassion from me and mercy from me, but our nation still wrestles with the issue of whether a person inside a mom is a human being when it could live, he or she could live outside the womb. And it's, it's the issue of the value of human life. That's all it is. The, we're wrestling with this issue as equally wrestling with the issue of the rights of a woman and is it her body and does she have freedom and so, and so forth. So we're wrestling with this as a nation as we have for half a century. So a woman who directed a, a Planned, Parented, Planned Parenting uh, clinic and herself led in, in 60,000 abortions. And she herself had two abortions being raised in a Christian home. She finally sees uh, the size of the fetus in, in an abortion, in, in an ultrasound, and she sees the baby kicking, resisting the abortion. And she sees the baby fleeing to the other side of the uterus to get away from what's about to happen. And she just freaks out. And, uh, and she's not a Christian yet, but she has this come to Jesus moment where she, she just decides, I can't keep doing this. And eventually, she does become a Christian. And the beautiful thing in the movie uh, as Christians are often portrayed as being evil, wicked people, that they're actually compassionate people in this movie. She comes to Christians to get counseling, to get help, but she tells her story and she eventually writes a book about her story. It's just her story. But boy, did she get the hatred for telling her story of what she went through and her wish that everyone who wants to live could live. My point, you're, you're thinking, well, Mark, you're going on to a detour, rabbit trail. Hang with me for a second. Nobody's gonna come up to you and say, I hate you because you're a Christian. It's going to be a secondary issue that your Christianity causes you to believe in. The early church believed that infanticide should not happen. The Romans, when a, a mom had a girl, boys were prized when they had a girl, they would often take the, the, the baby girl out into the wilderness to die. And Christians stood up for that and said, we've, we've got to protect these young girls from being killed. It's, it's a similar kind of story. And Christians were persecuted for standing up. Christians were persecuted because they would not say Caesar is Lord. Christians were persecuted for many, many reasons that came out of their faith in Jesus Christ. So it could be that you and I, whether it's that issue or any number of issues, that we might stand up and say, you know what? It's just wrong. Or 
this happens to be just right. And you might be hated. But they hated him first. They hated Jesus because he hung out with unpopular people. They hated Jesus because he was with sinners. They hated Jesus because his disciples ate without washing their hands. They hated Jesus because he didn't lift up an honor. There's always these secondary reasons. But you're in good company. Jesus will show up with you in prison. Jesus will show up with you in your lonely moment. He's gonna give you a big hug. He says, I'm here with you. Inasmuch as they did it unto the least of these, they did it unto me. Then John says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, meaning we love. But what about the times that you don't feel very loving? Have you ever had those times? Am I confessing too much? He has an answer for that in verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. <laughs> you can say hallelujah for that one. Yeah, that, and, and John's such a great teacher. Don't you wish you had John teaching you every day? Because in, in, he, he rises, come on little children. Oh, my little children. You know, just this language. And then after he gives you the really tough lesson, come on, guys, we gotta love. We gotta love with sacrificial love. And then he ends it by saying, but you know, if you don't feel good about yourself right now, God's even bigger than that, yeah. right? Yeah. Big hug from God. So Cain's religion was all talk, and it proved to be false. So he tells us our religion, our faith, needs to be true, and the way it's true is we love. And the times that we feel our hearts condemn us even those times, we're reminded that God is bigger than our hearts. So he concludes, going back to verse 16, this is how we know what love is. How would we know what love is, right? Dionne Warwick once said, what the world needs now, is such a cool voice, is love, sweet love. Now, when you heard that, those of us that were alive in the 60s, um, those of us that are strolling bones, uh, did we all say, oh my gosh, that's right. Never thought, of, that, that's what we need. Or when the Beatles sang, what was the song? All we need is love. Did we think, oh my gosh! They're so right. Why didn't we think of that? You see, we were the generation of 
make love, not war. But then the Beatles broke up. (laughs) We can't get it together. We can't pull it together. So knowing about it and doing it are two different things. And John says, we gotta do it. And this is love. It's not feelings. Uh, When someone says, I just love the whole world, I gave you a quote. Uh, I'm not sure where it is. Um, Slide 19. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. (laughs) I hear this all the time. Christ came into my life, and now I just love everybody. What they're saying, and I think that's wonderful, what they're saying is I feel feelings of love for every, but you haven't done anything for every, you don't know everybody. So love is not a feeling, it's an action. And it's a sacrificial action, John says, defined by Jesus himself who laid his life down for us. So we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love in words or speech, but in actions in truth. So he uses the word material possessions. It's actually the word bios, from which we get our word biology, because he's, he's talking about the earthy stuff of life, your, your, your very existence, the material possessions and everything else. And so when someone comes to us with this need, how can we say, hey, love you, bro. Sorry, I don't have the time. Sorry, I can't help you. I don't have the money. Sorry, I can't help you. I can't. So there's various things that people sometimes find themselves in need. Now, we fabulously have a, a benevolent fund, and we've, we have chosen for 20 years as a church to take an offering quarterly so that we're ministering to each other in our family, and sometimes for the homeless as well, but mostly within our church to make sure that we're caring for one another. And that, but individually, there, there's going to be times that someone asks you. Now, people ask me all the time. Now, Let me ask you this. How many of you have way too much time at the end of the week? It's like, oh my gosh, I am just dripping. I'm swimming in time. So when someone comes up to me and says, Pastor, do you have a moment? Inside I say, are you kidding me? (laughs) Who's got an extra moment? Who's collecting moments? <laughs> I don't answer the question. I said, how can I help you? Because if I wait till I have an extra moment, I cannot help you. But because the issue isn't if I have extras. Do you have an extra $100 bill in your wallet that you could help me? Oh, yes. I pushed the wrong button at the ATM and I have scads of them. (laughs) I've been noticing at the end of the month I have way too much money. (laughs) 
So do you have a little extra you can help me? I don't have a little extra. Nobody has a little extra. But that's not really the issue. The issue is, can I help you? And so it is with everything in our lives. There's no, nobody's living with extra. Can we just settle that once and for all? <laughs> the issue is, can we love? God didn't have an extra son of God. I'll give you one because we got another one up in heaven. He gave us the one and only. That's what only begotten means. It means the one and only. The only one he had, he gave to us. And it was a big risk in terms of how I view it. You know, God, have you ever done this before? Have you ever sent the second person of the Trinity to die? Have you tried this in the lab? Do they get up? Does it actually forgive sins? No, we're doing it. There's no extra. There's no backup plan. And so God will call us. He will call us. But it's the love of God. And folks, it is the God life. It's us turning from the get life to the God life. Jesus told us the story of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? And it's always painful for me to read because in the story of the Good Samaritan, the villains in the story are pastors, <laughs> right? The guy gets beat up, pastor comes walking by and says, love to help you, but you know, I'm late for a pastor's conference. <laughs> Another pastor comes by, he calls them priests or Levites, he says, I'm on my way to memorize some Bible verses or whatever. Can't help you. Got to get to my small group. And then a, a Samaritan comes along who isn't even a Jewish person. He's from out of town. He doesn't even believe the same way as the Jews. And he sacrificially helps the person. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. In the question... Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the person who's different. It's the person that you wouldn't expect to help. It's the person that you don't have time to help and you don't have extra. You're a candidate. So guys, God is inviting us into this love life. But guess what heaven's gonna be like? 100% love. We will be fully baked Everybody out loving each other. Now, it may take us forever to get through a door, you know, after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you. It may take us forever to eat. No, here, you first, no, you first. I don't know how it goes, but it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> Folks, it comes full circle. The cross, I believe... And now, tag your it. Go love the way God has loved you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for inviting us into the God life. Thank you for winning our hearts. Thank you for conquering our sin. 
Thank you for revealing the truth of who Jesus is. And now God, inviting us into this simple life that we've always believed in, but we just never knew how it happens. We pray that you would pour your DNA into us. Give us your eyes to see people the way you see them. Give us your heart and give us the courage to give them our hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.